Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today with us, we have a good friend of mine. His name is Ben Lowe. And so we're so uh, excited to have Ben. We also have Ben Gomez back with us today. Yes, I am back. And I'm excited to be with my new friend, Ben Lowe. So Ben Squared today. Uh, Ben is a, uh, he's a post-grad student. So I guess the the better way to put it is he's... uh, I'm doctoral, a doctoral student, candidate doctoral at the candidate, University of Florida. Yeah, that's what we call ourselves. Gainesville and Gainesville. Yeah, I'm, Gainesville. I'm glad you're a Gator fan because I, well, I mean, but kind of a de facto Gator fan. I am. I'm a grad student, so most of my time is really spent being a grad student. Right. Once you get to that level, you stop caring about the sports and stuff. You stop. You start to lose the ability to care about much else besides your studies and research. Oh, for sure. But you're still a, a supporter, an advocate of all things UF. I try to love all people. Yes. <laughs> good answer. I love that. That's a good answer. Uh, he's doing his doctoral work in environmental sciences. Um, particularly, we wanted to have Ben on the podcast because Ben has actually for quite some time now been uh, a very vocal uh, spokesperson for creation care and talking about the environment. And he's also now the chair on the board for the Evangelicals for Social Action. Did I get that right? Yep. Good, good. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is definitely like a part of Ben's uh, whole life. And so uh, we're just glad to have Ben with us. Ben, tell us a little about yourself, maybe even how you got into caring for you know the earth. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you all. Um, I'm originally from Singapore, Malaysia, and that's where I was born and, and raised. Uh, and I grew up largely, uh, I grew up in the church, my um, parents taught at a Bible college and um, I've, I've always loved nature. I've loved being outdoors. I have a weird obsession with all things fish related. I love fishing. I love eating fish. I love watching, studying fish, keeping fish in my home aquarium. I don't know what it is, but anyway, I've always... It's, so- it's interesting to me that you like fish that much and then you like to eat them. Yeah, you know? I value I value them holistically. Hmm, good, that's good. <laughs> well, that's that, you're consistent. That's good. And again, I don't know why it's. Fish. I mean, some people for some people it's birds, for some people it's flowers. You know, there's just. Yeah. But, but I've always or, or I, I, yeah yeah I okay. guess we'll put it there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I was about to say is I've always had this value for God's creation. I've seen value in it, but mm. for the longest time, it was that that value, that view is never connected to my faith, which is the most central and defining part of who I am. And so it wasn't until I was 19 years old in college and uh, I was at my church and the preacher for that day preached a sermon from Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and care for it. And that was the first time I heard a sermon in church connecting my passion for God's creation with my faith. Yeah. And I realized how much of a blind spot it had been all those years, as it is for many of us and many of our churches today. Yeah, it's, um, it is definitely not very talked about, at least not often. It might be kind of mentioned briefly, right, and then kind of passed on by. But, but Ben and I met actually in... Uh, 
Tanzania, Tanzania, uh, very serendipitously, I was down teaching at a Bible college. Ben happened to be down studying, uh, the fisheries on Lake Tanganyika. We ended up staying at the same place, which is a friend of mine's parents guest house, mm-hmm. uh, right there on the lake. So it was a very happy, uh, accident that we've come together and become friends. Um, but while you were there, so before we get into some of our kind of deeper questions, maybe tell us a little about what you're researching sure. and how that is going to be helpful for the church. I hope I hope it is helpful for the church and for society in general. Well, that so, would be good, right? No, all of society. <laughs> no, I'm working really hard on it, so I'd really like it to be useful. Um, I study the human dimensions of environmental change. So I'm interested in how people perceive and then respond to many of the environmental challenges that are going on. I do that in two primary contexts. One is I look, I work with fishing communities to understand how fisher folks are adapting to some of the changes that they're experiencing in their fishery. So a lot of times this is declining catches, which impacts uh, human well-being and nutrition and things like that. And then the other context that I work in is um, I work with religious communities, especially uh, Christians and churches in the United States and, and somewhat beyond too, to understand how as Christians we're engaging with these big issues that the world is facing. And really, I, you know, my, background as an undergrad was biology, but the more I started studying and caring for God's creation, which includes people, the more, however, I started to realize that if I really wanted to protect creation or conserve creation, I had to work with people because we're so integral to how this world functions and we're having such an impact. So that's when I switched my focus to be more on people and human behavior, human attitudes, perceptions, beliefs, values. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe hit us up with a little bit of that. Cause when I was there, you were doing a lot of studies with, uh, fishermen, both Christian and Muslim, and I'm guessing some agnostic as well, or even some, uh, uh, more regional kind of religions. And so you, as you were telling me, they were having a harder time fishing mm-hmm. even from the 10 years that you were there previously. Mm-hmm. And, um, how was their response to that? And why is that important to us? Yeah, Lake Tanganyika is one of the most unique and beautiful places I've ever been to in the world. It's the second deepest lake in the world, has hundreds of species of fish in this lake, most of which are found in no other lake. And so there are a lot of human communities living in the four countries around the lake. And a lot of these communities depend on the fish in the lake for their livelihoods, for a major source of protein uh, for them. And what we've been seeing over the decades is due to changes in climate patterns in the area, uh, an increasing warming regime that's causing the winds to die down, and it's affecting the nutrient cycling in the lake. Basically, because that this this lake is driven, the cycling of the nutrients in this lake is driven largely by wind, which causes these upwellings to take place on a seasonal basis, bringing this nutrient-rich water from the bottom of the lake up to the top where all the oxygen is found and where all the fish live without the winds blowing, which is what the, the problem is. They're becoming less dependable, more intermittent, not as strong. Then the upwellings aren't happening as much. Not enough nutrients are coming to the top of the lake, which means that you undercut the whole food web. Yeah. Uh, without nutrients, you don't have the things that, that grow from the nutrients. You don't have the little things that eat the things that grow from the nutrients. And all the way up to where you don't have as many fish in that ecosystem anymore. And so people aren't catching as many fish. And, and then the existing pressure from the fishery is exerting a top-down effect where it's driving the populations of fish down further 
uh, even as they're being undercut from the bottom too. So it's a, it's a beautiful place, but it's undergoing a lot of very hard change right now. Yeah. And so what are the people's response, like especially kind of the religious response to what's happening? Yeah. So part of uh, this is interesting because there hasn't actually been a lot of work done on the role of religion in fisheries management, even though religion plays often a defining role in how we view the world and how we relate to the world and each other. And so it's been a blind spot in the realm of fisheries management, not in anthropology. There have been lots of anthropologists that have studied this. And I drew a lot from their work. But in terms of actual fisheries management as a discipline, it's been a blind spot. And so we did some of um, some of the first research and we published a paper from it recently um, on the role of religion in this fishery. Because part of how you respond to problems is based on or is influenced by what you understand the problem to be. So a lot of these folks who are fishing, they're almost all either Muslim or Christian, but a lot of them also practice some elements of traditional folk spirituality or religion. Um, And so they view, this tends to be more animistic, they tend to um, view uh, certain parts of the lake as being sacred and certain species at times as being sacred. And they have all these different taboos that govern how they use the lake and and go fishing. And so sometimes what can happen for a lot of folks is if they're not catching the fish, it's because they've done something wrong to offend the spirits that govern that part of the lake, Mm. or um, they need to appease the spirits in some way. And so they turn to adaptations like um, more animal sacrifices or hmm. purification rituals, yeah. uh, which is, you know, part of the blood sacrifice thing. And so they're investing a lot of really valuable resources and money into these religious uh, practices and rituals to adapt and try to increase their catch. Uh, while they're not necessarily, um, and that takes away from their ability to invest in other adaptations and take the money that they're putting into chickens for sacrifices, for instance, into something that um, could also be a way to adapt and improve their livelihood. So that's where one of the many ways that religion really plays an important role. And if we're blind to that, then we're really not able to understand how the people are, um, how the people are responding and perceiving what's going on. You know, as you were sharing about, um, you know, you said how, how do they view the issue and the problems and with the wind cycle? Um, is there anything maybe that you have noticed that you're like that maybe people um, in the region haven't really noticed that what is an issue or part of it? Any conclusions that maybe you are starting to come to or maybe the beginning of that can shed some light in that area? It was really interesting talking to a lot of these fisher folks because we talk about local ecological knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge. These are people who have grown up around the lake, whose families have fished the lake for multiple generations in a lot of cases. So they understand a lot about what's going on the lake and they perceive a lot of change taking place. But what they might point to in terms of the drivers of those change might be different than what someone who studied the local changes in climate and nutrients and all would Point to. So what was interesting is that we all, um, whether you're coming from more of an outside or, or you know, uh, trained scientific position or research base, or whether you're coming from more of a local experiential uh, observation based approach, everybody agrees that things are changing really quickly and this has become a real big problem. And so based on that, um, we, we 
don't necessarily need to agree as to all the reasons why things are changing. But if we recognize that things are changing, then we can come together and work towards solutions. And so that's been an interesting lesson for me is that sometimes I think we spend a lot of time um, in some contexts, especially around issues like climate change in the United States, we spend a lot of time arguing about who's to blame and who's at fault and, right. and all this. But at the end of the day, if we all just, if we're able to acknowledge that, oh gosh, things are changing faster than they have, faster than we're adapting, and we need to do something about it, then there's actually some room for making progress together, even if we don't yet fully agree on the causes. Yeah. yeah. Good. So, so how does this cross over, I think, into American Christianity in terms of like how we perceive, and because I, I know that you've, you've, you've written multiple books on this now and have thought about this in terms of, uh, environmental care. You know, you've been on boards of organizations dealing with environmental care for Christians. How is that same, what, what correlations have you seen between kind of the mindset of the peoples that you've studied in Tanzania as it correlates to the way that the church perceives climate problems today within America and then our response to it? I think the biggest thing I've noticed is actually a difference, which is that climate change is not first and foremost a political issue over there. It's a reality that people are dealing with, that they're trying to understand, but they don't first look at it through the lens of politics, especially party politics or partisan politics. Whereas in the U.S., this issue, along with some other environmental issues, has become very polarized politically. And so if you're part of a more a progressive political ideology, then this is something you care about and are willing to champion and have lots of role models. But these days, if you're part of a more conservative political ideology, it can be harder to find good role models to look to who are working towards solutions. Yeah. They exist. Uh, they've been marginalized for a while. And this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, the, you know, In many countries around the world, you have environmental champions across the political spectrum. So this is does not need to be the case. It has become the case in this country. And I think the challenge that I've seen in the church is that often many Christians approach these issues first and foremost. They look through a political lens as political issues instead of stepping back and saying, okay, they have political implications, but even before that, they're moral issues, they're spiritual issues, they're biblical issues. So if we start there, then we have common ground with all sorts of people who might be different than us in terms of what they think and all, but it gives us a place to start as we try to engage faithfully on these issues. Yeah, because I think... That's a great answer. Yeah, I, I think... So maybe beyond politics, which I think plays a big role in it, right? Especially today with our partisan politics and, well, that's not my group. My group doesn't care for that or that is my group and that my group does care for that. What else is like... Why do Christians in America, what else is maybe driving the the thought process and, you know, do I recycle or do I not, do I care about plastics in the ocean or do I like, you know, what else, what else is actually kind of maybe playing into why we think about environmental care and creation care the way we do? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very complicated question. There are a lot of factors at play and it varies, uh, but a lot of it uh, points to uh, our community and those who we surround ourselves with, the subcultures that we're a part of. And if we're part of a space that takes this seriously, then we tend to take it seriously and it's easier for us to engage. If we're part of a space that um, minimizes it or is skeptical about it, then it's really hard to swim against that current. So we find that, you know, depending on what region of the country you're in, you can have different attitudes that kind of correlate with yeah. those around you. Um, sometimes with gender, sometimes with race, it's just a, a lot. 
and sometimes with theology and theological beliefs. But at the end of the day, I think some of these things are really not the reason that we're um, not engaging on these issues. They, we, we bring them up uh, at some points, and sometimes I think they can influence it. But at the end of the day, according to the best research and data we have right now, politics is one of the primary drivers, and theology can can factor in there. But also, these are really overwhelming, demoralizing, can can be despair-causing issues, and it's hard to know. They're so big, and we're so individualistic in our culture. It's hard to know how to respond to these issues, and so sometimes yeah. people avoid engaging them or taking them seriously at all because, and I understand, it is just overwhelming. And so what we have to do is we have to help people figure out how to get our heads around these problems and how to work together in community to address things that we can't do on our own. And so for our listeners out there that just um, heard you explain that, um, they might say, okay, how can I, number one, uh, get more knowledge about being a good steward of God's creation um, through organizations that you're working with and leading? And then two is, what can I do? Like, what can I do in my sphere, in my world of influence? Um, you know, does that mean I go to driving electric? Do I go hybrid? You know, what, what's something that I can do that's not maybe talked about too much, you know, on the news and in politics, but as someone that's, you know, at the forefront, we would say, what can I do? How can I help um, the planet? You know, that is a, another huge question of which many books have been written. And there are many lists online that people can find. It's like, you know, the top 10 things to do to be a a good steward of the environment or uh, top 99 things, depending on how many things you want. Uh, but I would take a step back. And so to answer your first question, I would recommend organizations like Arasha, which is an international Christian conservation organization, or the Osable Institute, which is a Christian environmental studies institute, or the Evangelical Environmental Network and Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And there are many other groups, but those are those groups have a lot of resources, a lot of good people, good information. There's a lot of books that have been published or a lot of videos that you can find online of different Christian leaders unpacking a theological basis for understanding and approaching these issues and then also guiding people in terms of what they can do in their own lives. So it's, there's just a lot of resources out there. And it's, it's important to connect into a community of people who care about these things because we all need each other in order to um, understand how to live faithfully today. And then, so to answer your second question in terms of what are some of the things, that's where I, I think it's important to take a step back even and recognize that everybody's solution, everybody's approach and engagement is going to be based on the place that they that God has them and the work that God has called them to do. And these issues intersect with all of that. Um, so at, for instance, at Arasha, we have a new program, a membership program that was recently launched called Love Your Place. And it's the idea of you look around, you see what where God has placed you, the resources God has given you, the skills, the gifts, the community, uh, and you figure out what does it mean to show God's love for the people and the place in which he has placed us. Uh, so Sometimes folks just, you know, they, they we want to change the light bulb and check the box and move on. But unfortunately, something like this, it's a it's a part of our faith. It's a lifelong journey where we're always going to be growing. We're always going to be learning how to have a smaller environmental footprint or a smaller negative impact and a bigger environmental handprint or a bigger pot of positive impact because yeah, um, you know, humans aren't wow. just meant to be less of a curse. They're meant to be, we're created to be a blessing too. And so that's a piece of it. We have to think relationally 
Uh, we have to realize that we we take one step at a time and we're always taking steps. We're always growing and seeking to be faithful. And that's just, and at the, at the end of the day, um, environmentalists, sometimes we get a lot of flack for motivating people with guilt, like making people feel bad about everything. And I, I Why feel didn't that. you recycle that? <laughs> Aaron yeah. never, never makes me feel that way with oh, anything. No. Uh, it's, I love you too much. I know. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but what I was going to say, however, is that uh, guilt has its place. It helps us recognize things that we're not doing that we should be doing differently. But at the end of the day, I really believe that our motivation in engaging these things has to be love. We're doing it because we love God. We're doing it because we love our neighbor which is what Jesus said was the most important thing. And we're doing it because we love the world that God cared for, loves, created, and has entrusted into our stewardship. And so at the end of the day, this is a part of our worship to God. Wow. Yeah, I, I love that too. Cause I mean, for me growing up, I was told many different things just by the Christian environment that I, that I was in was either, that climate change or any of that was uh, a conspiracy. It was kind of, there was no real science to it. It was a conspiracy. It was all, somehow it was actually all- Fake news. Yeah. If, and somehow it was worse. It was not even just fake news. It was news that was meant to like uh, disprove God somehow, right? Like there's a suspicion of science that it's all out to get God. And so- Growing up then, when you heard about companies that were actually kind of using or abusing the environment and not helping, there was this attitude of, of uh, on the flip side, there was an attitude that came from this thought process that said, God's going to destroy this earth and give us a new one. And so in some sense, use it as you will, because you'll get another one uh, sooner rather than later. So with both those mentalities kind of going in, it was like, oh, you can do whatever you want with it. There's no, there's no real consequences, which I, which I found kind of as I was, as I was kind of learning and processing and even just like in a couple of degrees, like learning better with reading the Bible, you know, I, I started recognizing this kind of church attitude, this church history attitude of, uh, you know, reading Revelation and hearing about the four horsemen and hearing about all these things that were going to happen to the earth. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about what climate change scientists actually say are going to come, mm -hmm. right? Like if we don't make big changes, you know, mm -hmm. famine and disease and lack of water and how expensive everything's going to become. And I'm like, well, it seems like we're almost self-fulfilling a prophecy, right? Like mm. we're, we're using the earth. We know that these things are going to come about using the earth. And that's exactly what uh, those same people that would tell me that climate change was a hoax would also say is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's like we both have the same end result here, but mm -hmm. one of us is trying to stop it. The other one's just kind of saying, ah, oh, it's going to happen. So don't worry about it. How do we help change Christian attitudes towards that mm. like doing that thing, like recognizing even if, even if, uh, or like I said, you know, today and Ben was in my classes today, but, uh, like Augustine would say, even if Christ were to return tomorrow, I would still plant a tree today. Like what, what Christ is going to do tomorrow does not affect how I take care of where I'm at and in this place today. Well, how do we help change kind of attitudes and thought processes to say, this really is something that we should care about and be focused on and not just getting someone saved. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, some of those passages you referenced from the book of Revelation, um, there's, there's, a, there's a verse in the book of Revelation that also says, and now is the time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Yeah. So I yeah. think what, what we maybe need to do is take That's a... That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, God, I, I believe God's in control. I believe God is sovereign. But I also believe that um, it's a complicated dance with understanding human free will. And I believe that God sometimes... L- lets us experience the impacts of our sinful behavior. And unfortunately, usually it's those who are already more vulnerable and more marginalized who experience the impacts of these problems, not necessarily the people causing them. So I think really what we need to do, you know, I don't, I don't, whenever Jesus comes back, may it be soon, I don't want to, I want to be doing what Jesus asked me to do. I don't want to be part of the problem when he comes back as much as I can help it. Uh, I want to be doing his work. And that's at the end of the day, if we take a step back and, and start with scripture um, and we help folks understand just how much these themes of loving God, loving creation, loving our neighbor go all the way through scripture from Genesis one, we were created in the image of God. Unlike all the other species, which were created in their own image, birds were made like birds, fish were made like fish, but we were made like God in order that we may have dominion over the, that we may rule over the fish of the air, the birds of the sea. We've taken that term dominion, which can have harsh implications, but we've run with it in a very sinful human way, not to represent God, but to represent some broken image of ourselves. And so what we really need to do is understand, and the Bible has so much to say here. And when we understand how God cares about his world and we understand what God wants of us in his world. And we wonder when you're not, sorry, when we understand what God is doing in the world today, God's mission in the world and how creation, you look at passages like Romans eight and Colossians one is part of that reconciliation and is part of being uh, liberated from this groaning. Then we start to realize that God invites us not just to be recipients of his salvation, but participants in the mission that he is doing yeah. in this world yeah. right now. And that's a huge privilege. Well, how does it, something you said that I think is maybe a, a question, and this might actually even go along with Ben's PhD a bit, uh, which is how, how is it disparate? Like how, how is climate change disproportionately affecting those who are already poor and marginalized? And how is it that we who are not poor and marginalized are missing it? Mm. Well, everything, um, you know, climate change Good is answer. Not- everything, <laughs> <laughs> everything and Jesus. Oh, perfect. Um, climate change is, is not just an environmental issue. It's an all of the above issue. It really intersects so much. I mean, we're, we're talking about changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere. We all live within this atmosphere. And so this is affecting all sorts of sectors of our lives and society and the non-human creation. Uh, so climate change becomes a business issue. It becomes a security and, and national security military conflict issue. It becomes a food nutrition issue, a water issue. It becomes a natural disaster issue. And what it does is it lays on top of all the challenges that we face and it intensifies them. It adds more stress to a system that in many ways is already pretty stressed in a lot of contexts. And often it's the 
the economically poor or the marginalized, the vulnerable populations that are already living in places that are more vulnerable to natural disasters, or they're living in places with higher stress from you know, higher heat stress or whatever it is without air conditioning resources. And so you get more intense heat waves and who gets hurt is the young, yeah. the weak, the elderly, the homeless. It's, it's all those people. So climate change really, I mean, it, it just pushes us a lot further. But those of us with resources who live more insulated lives, who don't grow our foods, but who go to the supermarket to buy our foods, if our crop, if, if a crop fails in an area, we don't have to worry about it because we'll just source the food from somewhere else right. or pay a little bit more for it. But we can afford to do that. So it's people without resources that are going to be and are being hurt the most. Yeah. Well, wow, so much to ask and say, um, but I, I kind of love what you just said. It's it's the way we steward that, and you're right. If if our resources, as far as vegetation, um, our crops don't grow or something happens, then we outsource it. Um, to go back um, to the opening comments about the lake in Tanzania called Tanganyika. Tanganyika, uh, could it be that because? Um, that community relies so much on that fishery. That climate change is noticeable and it's important to them because it's part of their livelihood. Whereas part here in the West, our livelihood maybe in our metropolis area is not natural resources so much, but it is products and things that we extrapolate from the earth to make the things that we need that maybe that's why climate change in the U.S. is not something that's so much valuable and important to many because of, you know, um, I would say, because we don't rely so much on the natural resources. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big challenges, this is a legitimate challenge that we face, especially in more developed countries, is that we've designed our lives and our societies to be very insulated from other people and from our impacts on the environment and for changes in the environment. And the environment has always fluctuated, weather, climate has always fluctuated. And we've We've designed our lives to be insulated from that. And so the problem is it's hard for us to recognize when things change. It's hard for us to recognize what we're doing to make things better or worse. We It takes a lot of work and we have to start paying attention and we have to start listening to the stories of people around the world who are experiencing yeah. these and are more dependent. Because at the end of the day, all of our lives are dependent on natural, what we call natural resources, on creation. Right. Uh, it's just we're so many steps away from being on the ground from that that we need to listen to those stories. And that's part of what I and many others do is because of the research I do, the relationships I get to have, I feel like that's a very important responsibility for me to steward by sharing the stories of these people with folks who don't get to know them themselves. And by doing that, we can have a better picture of what's going on in the world. Something something that you said in, in my class um, that I think was really important was, you know, mentioning that polar bears tend to be like the mascot for climate change in America. But for most of us, including us here in good old warm Florida, uh, polar bear mean, not doesn't mean anything, but just we have no real connection to it. Right. Yeah, like it's so far away. How does this impact? How does this affect our lives if the polar bears are struggling? I mean, no one wants the polar bears to struggle, but we've got a lot of problems that we're dealing with all the right. time. So is that really going to rise to the top of our priority list? 
So rather rather than even thinking about a polar bear as a mascot, but rather hearing the stories of people who we are connected with and how they've been affected by climate change is becomes a bit more of a powerful reality for saying this is not just an insulated issue for a couple people. It actually is going to affect a lot of different people in the world. It's 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 in some sense that story of, you know, we don't know. I think the worst famine that I can remember is that a few years ago, the price of eggs went up because there was a disease that was affecting chickens and causing, you know, chickens to die. And then I couldn't get eggs as cheap as I used to. Right. I mean, that's, that's probably the worst famine that I can remember being someone who has lived in the States my entire life. Right. (laughs) I just want to, I'm just assuming what I'm thinking as you're making that comment of what Ben is thinking. I'm just like, man, where are you going? I'm just thinking, well, I'm thinking for my studies, I'm like, man, in a post-colonial world, right? Mm. A decolonized person would say, and you're worried about the price of Right. No, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly it. Right. I think what you're saying, I don't mean to cut you off, but you know, I think we're going the same in the same vein here is, is that that is being a good Christian is to hear the story of my neighbor, whether it's my neighbor across the street, right, right. whether it's my neighbor that lives in a rural area, or whether it's my neighbor that lives in Tanzania, what is God doing and what's happening to creation where we all can benefit and we all can live together in harmony? Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's listening to the wow. person who actually has gone through a real famine mm-hmm. and recognizing how that famine affected them, why that famine happened. And to say if that famine has happened in the past, right? Like, or like we, you know, just saw in the news with Venice being kind of starting to flood, it's sinking, sea level is rising. They voted against changing uh, how much they spend on climate change. And within three hours, their chambers were flooded, which is just ironic. Not that it's, Mm -hmm. you know, anything other than irony, really, at this point. Aquaman. Yeah, but <laughs> but it's hearing the stories of people who have actually been affected and recognizing that they're being affected more today than they were yesterday. And whether we want to call that climate change or not, what actually caused them to be so affected and how do we help mm-hmm, becomes right. a really desperate Christian issue, which mm-hmm. might even mean how I live my life the way I live it, even though I may not live in Africa. Mm-hmm. Right. And deal with that famine. I can actually live my life and whether it's not being so highly consumeristic and constantly buying the new cell phone that requires the mining to happen in different places in Africa, which creates a lot of econo- uh, ec- not economic, but ecological problems, right? Like me changing the way that I live will then affect someone else's ability for their own kind of creation care. Yeah, and that's a, one of the an organization I'm really involved with called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. One of the things we do is we record what we call climate testimonies. We just record the stories. In this case, uh, a lot of it is the stories of Christian college students around the United States who grew up in church or who came to faith at some point, and they're following Jesus, and they care about climate change. And what we what we ask them is, tell us how you came to care about this issue. And it's fascinating to hear about the ways, the so many different ways that God has worked in our lives to open our eyes to His world and His His heart for His yeah. world. And it's really encouraging because we need to hear the stories of those 
who are experiencing the impacts, but then we also need to hear the stories of those who are participating in the solutions and whose lives have been transformed by the Spirit to care and engage on these issues, because that's an important way for us to move forward, too. And, and it's almost that we need to be listening to the stories more often, too, not just once and say, I did it, right? Because it reminds me of like the, we have a lot of college students who go on mission trips uh, and Southeastern sends out a lot of students, right? But you've got the student who goes on the mission trip and sees for the first time, you know, poverty, like real poverty, and then comes home and is like, I'm not wearing shoes anymore and I'm refusing to do this and I'm not going to spend money on a movie. Like they, they kind of go to this extreme of going like, how can I spend money when I've seen real poverty? Which may not be the best response in terms of kind of going just this to the extreme, but it is a recognition that if we actually hear those stories and we hear them more often than just once every however many years I go on a mission trip, then I might be more apt to remember, hey, what I do today is actually affecting and making change for somebody else mm-hmm. in the world. And am I paying attention? Mm-hmm. And a a word that we've used a lot just in this conversation has been the word listen. It requires us to be able to stop talking and to listen to the perspective of other people, especially we're used to sending, the American church is used to sending missionaries around the world to proclaim. Uh, And it's getting to the point where we really need to, I mean, it's way past this point, where we really need to do a lot more listening than we're doing. That That's fascinating in some sense to say just that, like maybe we need to stop sending out to speak, but sending out to listen. Like, I, I wonder what we could do if we would take more time to listen to people's. And I think that's the same here in the States. Stop telling people what is going to fix their problems and actually start asking, well, what are your problems? First and foremost. And what are our problems? And do you have any advice or wisdom yeah. for how we yeah. can be living more faithfully ourselves? Yeah. It's not assuming that we have all the right answers mm-hmm. immediately. Uh, so I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> it just got good. I was like, I just need to think about this for a while. So, uh, with, with all that being said, it can be sometimes a pessimistic conversation to kind of go like, Hey, all this is kind of happening and this is kind of tough, but where maybe give us some optimism where you see attitudes and people and places changing. Where do you see the hope coming from in this conversation? Oh gosh. I see, I see the hope coming from Christ and the hope we have in the resurrection. Um, ultimately that's where I see hope coming from God's determination, not just to save the world, but to use us in the process. So I see a lot of uh, encouragement from younger generations who are starting to lead the way, who are recognizing that they're going to inherit this world and the state that it's in. And they need the current incumbent generation of leaders to take that seriously and leave a world to them that they can find a way to thrive in and their, their kids can find a way to thrive in. So I've been really encouraged. And a lot of my research now is shifting to focus more on how younger generations are engaging in these ish, on these issues within the church and in the broader society differently than their parents and grandparents' generation have. But at the at the same time, I do think it's important to recognize there is a lot of degradation and destruction and loss and suffering going on, and we haven't always faced that. We don't always have the resources, I think, in a lot of the American Christian church, especially maybe in in a lot of the more white evangelical spaces, in particular to um, 
to to grieve and to mourn and to lament. And I I have one of my mentors often um, refers to doing this work, this creation care work around the world as, as sort of sometimes feeling like you're sitting at the bed of a dying friend. You're witnessing this great loss and you have this ultimate hope in the resurrection. But in the meantime, you're there as the presence of Christ witnessing to the good that yeah. was here in, in this life um, and what's being lost. And we need to also learn how to do that because it's not all, um, you know, clear blue skies from here on out. Right. We've got a lot that we're committed to that we're going to have to struggle through together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Ben, thanks so much for being with us and ending on that hopeful, having our hope in, in the redemption, reconciliation of Christ. Um, uh, you've got a few books. Yeah. I think they're the ebooks now are the, the way to go, especially given the environmental thing, right? <laughs> like, let's do the ebooks. Um, tell us about the books and tell us how sure. we can connect with you or if and, anyone um, can connect with you. Well, actually, so I, they can. Uh, one of the things about publishing books is that the publishers ask you to have a website. So folks can go to benlow.net if they want to find some of the things I've written or more information. Um, that's kind of a, a good place to go. Um, I've got a book titled Green Revolution that's more focused on environmental concerns and then a book Doing Good Without Giving Up that was a reflection after a decade of being engaged in social action. Um, what, I, what I've seen and learned from folks about how to be faithful and sustain faithfulness over the long haul. And then um, The Future of Our Faith, which I co-wrote with a good friend and, and a mentor of mine, Ron Sider, about some of the key, especially social issues that we see in the church and how we can um, address those moving forward. Yeah, perfect. And is the website the best way for people to connect with you if they sure. want to connect? Yeah. Perfect. 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 All right. Well, Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's been great. It's, uh, we learned a lot and we're learning to listen even more. Learning to listen, learning to ask smarter people than us dumb questions. That's, I think, uh, a good place to start. Oh, God of mercy on us all. <laughs> Don't we all need it? All right. Well, we will, uh, we'll be back together with you all soon. Thank you for tuning in. As always. <laughs>